0: I'm Eileen Dunn, and this is the God Slot. This week, the whirlwind that is Pope Francis continues to take the world's media by storm by being the first Pope ever to feature on the front of Rolling Stone magazine. The extensive cover story reflects his unusually wide appeal, which cuts across demographic lines of age, political views and even religious affiliation. This may in some way console the Pope after a crow and a seagull swooped in and attacked two peace doves he and two children released on Sunday as a symbolic appeal for peace in Ukraine. In an open letter following this incident, the National Animal Protection Agency in Italy said that because the doves were bred in captivity and lacked strong survival instincts, releasing them into the wild, as is often done at the Vatican, is like condemning them to certain death. And still in Italy, a vial containing the blood of the late Pope John Paul II, who will be proclaimed a saint in April, was stolen from a village church in a mountainous area east of Rome, sparking a manhunt that included more than 50 police and a team of dogs specialised in tracking. Here in Ireland, it's Catholic Schools Week this week and the Association of Catholic Priests has decried comments on the teaching of religion in primary schools made by the Minister for Education, Rory Quinn, as unreflective. The Minister had suggested that this time could be better spent in improving children's reading and maths. To discuss the statement of the Association of Catholic Priests, we're joined by one of its leaders, Father Gerry O'Connor. Father Gerry, you're welcome to the God slot.
1: Thank you very much.
0: We did invite the minister or his spokesperson to appear, but the press office was unable to help us, so I'll probably have to play devil's advocate. That's fine. The reaction of the Association of Catholic Priests to the statement, unhelpful, you said. Why?
1: Well, we believe it was unhelpful and surprising. One of the reasons we choose these words is because at the moment there are sensitive negotiations taking place about handing over schools held by religious trusts uh, so that there might be a greater diversity. And I think most of us, and certainly in the Association of Catholic Priests, we acknowledge the need for greater diversity in terms of patronages. For example, I live and work in the Ballyfermot area of Dublin. There are nine primary schools in that area. All of them are held by Catholic trusts, and we would recognise that there needs to be greater diversity. So at this sensitive uh, time, uh, the minister has taken the uh, opportunity to criticise the teaching of religion in schools. But what we understand is that there is no plan to change government policy around religious trusts, religions being able to hold patronages in in Ireland and that that will continue no matter how many schools are are handed over. So it seems surprising that the minister would uh, seek to... Uh, criticised the teaching of religion when it is an an accepted, established model operated by the Department of Education that religious trusts can run schools and that part of that, as you would expect, is that religion would be taught.
0: He also said he was disappointed at the lack of progress, that in fact no school has divested itself of patronage despite the
1: undertaking to do so. Under the Irish Constitution and the Education Act, uh, parents have a a big say when it comes to the education of their children. So you can have a situation where a patron might be happy to offer the campus, the school building to another patron that would uh, represent a, a different tradition. However, the parents the teachers must be consulted and it's very difficult to get uh, agreement in a localized area around the change of a patronage the teachers will have concerns anxieties and worries about their contracts the ethos and and parents who largely are happy with the schools that we have and the the ethos that operate there can also have strong objections and uh, reservations. It's much easier to start from a greenfield site, a new school with a different type of patronage. And I I think all of us who support uh, the uh, plurality of patronages are, are experiencing frustration about this process.
0: Indeed, but isn't it also the case that there are a lot of children in our Catholic schools who are there because their parents don't have a choice? There's nowhere else to put them at the moment. So should we not start looking at ways to change the situation within the schools.
1: The truth is that, for example, I'm the chairperson of a school with people from 14 different nationalities, nine different religious uh, traditions, where there's a, a great sense of inclusiveness. And on the ground, locally, children from different faiths and uh, religious traditions talk to each other about that. When, when we celebrate, for example, First Holy Communion, uh, we will often have a, a child from Muslim tradition singing one of the songs or hymns that's important to them. So Catholic schools can be inclusive. Places, However, I do recognise that when you look at enrolment policies, and I've been through this and we tried to somersault to try and make our enrolment policy as inclusive as possible. Uh, Usually you start with saying the children in a particular parish area who are Catholic are given first priority, then siblings, and it goes down along the line. So a parent, and I met one this week called Derek, who who has a child. Um, and Derek is an atheist and he feels like he would be about number nine on the list. So he feels like a, a second class uh, citizen and he, he feels strongly and uh, that it would be much better that there would be no religious culture there so that his child wouldn't feel different or unusual to the other children. So there is a frustration amongst uh, families there who are, haven't got a religious uh, tradition or who, ha- who don't want their child to go to a Catholic school. I would accept that.
0: Now, uh, Having said that, um, a letter written by Dr Daniel O'Connell from Mary I points out that the primary school curriculum in its introduction in 1999, there are seven areas of teaching in primary school and one of those is religion. So it's obligatory.
1: It is obligatory that it takes place within uh, the school setting, but a parent uh, has the opportunity and the choice to uh, have their child not sit in, in specific religious education uh, classes. And the schools will really try hard to facilitate that. So religion is there is a compulsive side to it, but also parents have some choices.
0: Well, I note that in your statement, the Association of Catholic Priests, you are generally supportive of the shift from school to parish for sacramental preparation.
1: This is one of the bones of contentions of teachers and others that the years during which children are making their first communion and making their confirmation that a huge amount of time, school time is devoted to the preparation of children for that purpose. We believe in the association that it would probably be better that the faith formation for communion and confirmation take place outside of school in parish settings. We get very little evangelization dividend from uh, the school being um, a Catholic school in the sense that I work in an area with a 2% church uh, practice rate. So there, sometimes there is this idea that we are uh, creating... Um, a new generation of devout Catholics uh, from our schools. Most of the committed uh, next generation of Catholics are coming from engagement at the uh, parish level. And I think if you were to fully study the minister's comments, he is talking about faith uh, formation. Uh, however, he muddies his comments by seem by suggesting that numeracy levels and literacy levels would be improved if there was less uh, religious education and I would argue strongly that uh, children flourish in a learning environment where there's a holistic approach, which includes uh, physical education, PE, and also In religious classes, when they're well done, there will be moments for stillness, calmness, meditation, helping children to appreciate beauty, also bringing in some of the other talents and skills that they have for music and song and drama, things like nativity plays. And so therefore, children are helped to overcome some of the uh, barriers to improved literacy by getting rid of clutter and chaos from their lives and helping their imagination. So... I couldn't understand the Minister's comments around that because to support his argument, you would have to produce evidence which suggests that in schools where there is 30 minutes of religious education, that the numeracy and literacy levels are less than in schools that don't devote 30 minutes to uh, a religious education programme. And to the best of my knowledge, there isn't any such evidence.
0: Well, it certainly has pushed the subject back up to the top of the agenda. Where do you think it's going to go now?
1: Well, I I think that the minister's efforts to achieve a greater diversity of patronage, I think that needs to be supported. It needs to be encouraged. But also, I'd like the minister and the government to uh, address the concerns that there might be some kind of an agenda which would suggest that religious trusts cannot uh, administer schools and that they can't teach religion or they should de-emphasise their, uh, their, their religious uh, class time. I think that some um, uh, comment from the minister that might allay fears, I think, w- would be helpful.
0: Well, we did, as I say, ask for the minister or a spokesman and they weren't able to help us. But Father Jerry O'Connor, thank you. No doubt this one will run and run. Pastor Joel Edwards was director of the General Evangelical Alliance until the end of 2008. He recently visited Ireland to promote a film-based nine-week course meant as a resource for Christians known as the Jesus Agenda. He met and spoke to Gerry McArdle.
2: The Evangelical Alliance is a broad church alliance of evangelical churches And I guess the heartbeat of the Alliance is to seek to uh, mine the biblical truths from the Bible and then to ask how we communicate those truths to the realities of life. So everything from who was Jesus, how do we understand God, how do we understand the claims of the Bible and how do these make sense in the everyday realities of contemporary life.
3: Now, a lot of people, when they hear the word evangelical, they think, uh, fundamentalist. Um, but you're not like that. You're not a fundamentalist. In fact, you've spoken out against a certain kind of fundamentalist, haven't you, fundamentalism within the
2: movement? Well, that's the nicest thing which has been said to me for a long time. You know, we don't deny that it, within every shade of a uh, religious system you have uh, extreme views and polarities, and that is true... ...of the evangelical movement around the world. But I think that historic evangelicalism... ...at its best is about the common good... ...is about um, seeking to be true to your Christian faith... uh, ...to be true in your allegiance to Jesus Christ... ...to be a true disciple... ...and yet to be a servant of Christ to people in the world. And I think if if that's your posture um it doesn't really accommodate arrogance and it tries to marry assurance of faith with humility so how does one um adhere to what we would regard as biblical truths about god as creator god as sovereign in the world jesus as his only son born of a virgin lived amongst men and women died on a cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, coming back. All these incredibly significant beliefs. How do you hold to those tenaciously and faithfully and yet not seek to impose that on your neighbor? But what you do impose on your neighbor is a love and service to neighbor, which that very scripture demands from you. And that balance is, I think, uh, what true faith really should be all about. So tell me what you're doing in Ireland. Well, I'm really privileged to uh, be here, um, courtesy of Christian Aid. And three years ago, Christian Aid and Compassion 2, um, very well-known Christian belief and Development Agencies, sponsored a little project I had in mind which we now call the Jesus. Agenda, And that really is asking some profound questions from the book of Luke in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus steps out at the inaugural stage of his ministry and says, you know, God has um, enthused him and anointed him by the Holy Spirit to release captives, uh, to open the eyes of the blind. And this has been a very powerful motivation for Christians. So uh, the Jesus agenda... Is a three-part DVD which is a training and resource tool to help Christians in small groups or large groups or individual Christians or Christians in academia just begin to look at that text again and to invite them to inhabit the meaning of this incredible Commission Uh, and so to ask now how do we do advocacy for the world's poorest people if we have truly understood that. And so the launch of the Jesus Agenda um, here in Dublin is the reason I'm here. So let's, let's just get back to this, this Luke. It's Luke chapter 4, isn't it, specifically
3: that you're, you're, you're centering yes. on? Yes. Yeah. And that's where, in Luke, Jesus starts his mission. He lays out, he sets out his stall, as it were, and says here's what I'm about to do and this is what I'm here to do. Yes. Um, what, what practical application does that have in, in, in today's life?
2: You know The great thing about that text is that it's Jesus drawing from the book of Isaiah, so there's tremendous continuity there, and that's a challenge for us. And so if one looked, for example, at the material importance of Jesus's ministry in the context of his world, what did it mean when he healed a leper? Actually, it meant he was restoring someone to their community because you didn't need to live in a leper colony anymore. What did it mean if he healed a lame or a blind person? Well, it meant that person became economically viable. You didn't have to beg anymore. Or when he healed a woman who uh, uh, raised from death uh, um, uh, a woman's son and restored that son to the woman... That means here is your pension scheme, here is your security in the context of the first century. And so we have to ask, how do we extrapolate from those for today and suggest that, yeah, um, Jesus is concerned about people coming to a live faith in him, forgiveness of sin, this is inextricably bound to the meaning of Luke 4. but What we also seek to do here through ministries like Christian Aid and others is to ask, how do we free the oppressed? And so it's been fascinating to see Christians pull from this text and become involved in anti-trafficking, to become involved in anti-corruption, to become involved in seeking to build education for children to attack and, and, and come against malaria and preventable diseases. So there are practical implications flowing from this ancient manifesto of Jesus in Luke 4.
3: See, that's very interesting what you say and, and, and that view of the miracles because sometimes you get the impression, listening to some preachers, that Jesus was a conjurer of some sort, you know, who went around doing magic tricks.
2: Yes, and you know, Jesus is not He's not a David Mm. Blaine. He really is about bringing in the kingdom of God on earth. And this is about touching the full range of human need, spiritually, physically, materially, economically. And, you know, one of the really important things um, in that Luke 4 is when he said, I have come to bring the acceptable year of the Lord. Theologians will tell us, that's a reference to an Old Testament reference in the book of Leviticus to the Jubilee concept, which was about economic, spiritual, agricultural freedom, freedom from slavery. And so this, this this attack on institutional bondage is very much a part of the message of Jesus in Luke 4, as we would understand it. And so, yeah, the Christian church has a mandate to the whole of human need, from spiritual need to those things which are perpetrated through institutions and structures which keep people bound and that's the excitement of it and once again you know that's the kind of thing uh, which advocacy demands of us. We build the hospitals, we dig the wells, but actually we speak up to the powerful as well.
3: You see again interesting what you say there because what you are saying is what in fact people like Bob Geldof, Bono, pop stars, actors, people in public life who probably don't have any religious belief whatsoever are actually doing. They're living this. And it seems then that the spirit is moving them, if not uh, more, than certainly as much as the pious pastor standing up in his pulpit talking a lot.
2: Well, I have to say, you know, from time to time I find myself in meetings with what we call secular bodies. Um, looking at issues like human rights. So I have an opportunity of being on um, the Foreign Secretary's, William Hague's, um, advisory group on human rights and religious freedoms. We meet twice a year. And when we leave that one-and-a-half-hour meeting, I have to say that there are times I'm reflecting on it, and I think, you know what, that, to my mind, felt more missional than some prayer meetings I have attended, because these are people who have dedicated their professionalism, their time, their passion, even their anger at looking out for someone 5,000 miles away they will never meet. I think that's incredible. And there has been a long established theological debate amongst biblical scholars about what does common grace mean? What does it mean to pursue uh, you know, the common good? And it seems to me that God's generosity must mean that he works principally through his church, imperfect though we are, but he works comprehensively in the world. And sometimes he does that through instruments and individuals who would not necessarily say, Jesus Christ is Lord, but who nonetheless find themselves in the slipstream of God's desire to free people from oppression and I just celebrate that whenever I find it. This project, the Jesus Agenda, was designed as a tool kit for Christians who want to consider how the Bible relates to advocacy and concerns for the poor. It is cost effective, it's not an expensive Uh, Tool. Um, don't ask me for the price because that will vary depending (laughs) on where you are but the idea is to say to Christians here is a three part engagement looking at uh, proclamation what does that mean looking at issues of power how do we address it looking at the issue of promise how do we fulfill political promise made to the poor and I think this three part study in nine ten minute segments offers the church with a study guide an opportunity to think reflect pray and act and anyone can get hold of uh, orders if you looked up the Jesus agenda or head back to Christian Aid who would be more than happy to make it available not just to Christians but to anybody who wants to understand the relationship between Jesus in a synagogue uh, 2,000 years ago and our obligations to be exactly uh, the same emissaries of good news 2,000 years later.
0: Pastor Joel Edwards talking to Jerry McArdle. Last Sunday was Holocaust Memorial Day, and we regret that the live broadcast from the annual ceremony on our digital service RTE1 Extra was disrupted due to technical problems. A recording was broadcast on Monday night and the entire ceremony is now available online. And just to give you a flavour of what happened, we bring you readings from poet Miholo Scheel and the Honourable Mrs. Justice Susan Denham, Chief Justice, with music from Connor Sheel on Clarinet and Maria Gehren on keyboard.
4: Clamouring for water even a handful of snow by day the glimpsed places in the dozed night groans are bickering until their wagons slow and crash open in a station's eerie floodlight. Canny ordinariness. No baggage, they're told. A dozen SS men with a stony, indifferent air move among the arrivals, questioning how old, healthy or ill, and pointing either here or there. Men won't abandon wives. Together afterward, they're reassured. Some mothers, unreconciled to leaving small children, are soon transferred. Good, they say, good, just stay with the child. A finger is pointing, caprices of fate allotted. Frozen silence of lives unseemed
3: and parted.
5: Our generation and the generation or two after us will be the last that will be able to say that we stood and shook hands of some of those who survived. Go home from this place and tell your children, and your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, that today in Listole, you looked into eyes that witnessed the most cataclysmic events ever unleashed by mankind upon mankind. Tell them that you met people who will still be remembered, and still talked about, and still wept over 10,000 years from now. Because if they are not, then there is no hope for us at all. The Holocaust happened, and it can happen again, and every one of us, if only out of our own self sense of preservation, has a solemn duty to ensure that nothing like it ever occurs again.
0: And that's all from the Godslot for this week. Our phone number is 01 208 2039. The email is godslot at rte.ie, and our postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio One, Dublin Four. Until next Friday at the same time, slán is bánacht.